0: From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. For those of you who have been listening in recent weeks, you know that we have been very deep inside corona. In fact, sometimes I think we don't talk about anything else. And from an ethical perspective, maybe that's correct. This is a pressing problem. People are dying, and we need to take that all extremely seriously. Yet it's also true that a little while ago when I spoke to Dr. Lori Santos of Yale University, she advised me that maintaining routine and tradition is a powerful way of managing ourselves under these circumstances. Well, for a lot of us, the maintenance of routine includes the schedule of holidays. And with Passover and Easter coming, we have to make a decision of whether to ignore those holidays altogether or to celebrate them as appropriately as we can under our current straitened circumstances. Here at Deep Background, we don't celebrate holidays as a podcast, but we do try to maintain some sense of continuity. And so we thought it was appropriate to have an episode that did talk about Passover, but Passover with a little bit of a Corona twist. And what better way to think about Passover and Corona than to talk about the biblical plagues associated with the Exodus story. For those of you who need a little bit of a refresher on what exactly those plagues are, The traditional count starts with blood, frogs, lice, and goes on in a list until it culminates with hail, darkness, and the killing of the firstborn. If that rings a bell for you, you might enjoy the rest of this episode. I'm joined by Dr. Idan Dershowitz. He's a junior fellow at Harvard University's Society of Fellows. His academic work has appeared in JBL, VT, ZAW, those are big journals in the Bible world, I promise you, not to mention the New York Times. His forthcoming book on the redaction of the Hebrew Bible will be published by Moore Siebeck. and he's currently studying the composition history of the book of Deuteronomy. Idan is one of the most creative scholars thinking about the Bible today, and he's also very engaging at talking about it. Idan, thank you for joining me. I wanted to start by asking you about the biblical story of the plagues. We usually start by saying there are 10 plagues, but you think that that might be a misnomer.
2: Yeah, um, so the idea of 10 plagues appears first in rabbinic literature, and they count 10 events that are described in the biblical text in the book of Exodus. However, the decision to count those specific 10 events is a matter of interpretation and does not at all um, derive directly from the text. It's not even clear that the correct classification is plagues at all, as opposed to, say, miracles, signs, wonders, and so on.
0: Well, then where would you start if you wanted to tell the story of the signs or wonders? Because I take it that signs and wonders are words that the biblical story uses repeatedly rather than the word plague. So where would you start your list? We now know they don't have to be 10 in your list, but where would you start with signs and wonders in the Exodus story? I think a
2: a good place to start would probably be the story of a competition between Aaron, brother of Moses, and the Egyptian magicians, where Aaron takes his staff and casts it upon the ground, and it becomes a tanin is the Hebrew word, which may be a crocodile, uh, some people think that it's that it's a reference to a snake, but it turns magically into a living creature. And then there's a bit of a battle between the magical creature created by Aaron's staff and a magical creature created by the magicians. But that seems to be the beginning of a series of miracle competitions between Moses and Aaron and the Egyptians. And so that continues in exactly the same form with the miracle of blood in the Nile and, and in other bodies of water, uh, the miracle of uh, or what we call the plague of frogs. All of those are told in exactly the same sort of language and, and literary structure as that story of Aaron's death.
0: You then talked about how the Egyptian magicians also perform others of these miracles. And there's a kind of face-off, as it were, between um, Moses and Aaron and what they're doing, and then what the uh, Egyptian experts are doing, their magicians are doing. Can I ask you, Mm -hmm. seen in the light of sort of ancient Near Eastern practice or imagination or ideology, is there a reason to think that there would be some fame associated with the idea of Egypt's magicians?
2: That's a good question. I mean, there are definitely was a very um you know robust tradition of magic in Egypt and we also know that there were interactions between magicians from different cultures so sometimes we find spells that are actually transliterated from in antiquity from one language to another so we do know that Egypt had a robust tradition of magicians and we do know that there was contact between those magicians and magicians elsewhere in the ancient Near East.
0: What you're describing, by the way, it sounds to me is like the practice of what I like to call ancient plagiarism, right? That if, if I had a good hymn or poem or story in my civilization and you came from another civilization and you heard it, you would just copy that story or translate that story into your own civilization and maybe swap out some of the proper nouns of the gods or the kings or the heroes. And then boom, you'd have a fresh story of your own. The most famous example of this, of where stories make their way through different ancient civilizations, is the flood story, which occurs not only in the Bible, but in older sources, uh, ancient Near Eastern, Mesopotamian sources as well. Do you happen to know off the top Mm -hmm. of your head whether there are plague stories in other ancient Near Eastern traditions, or is the uh, biblical story sort of a one-off?
2: You definitely do have stories of, of plagues in the ancient Near East. In fact, there's also traditions of plagues having occurred uh, in, in Egypt. So we have ancient Egyptian texts describing things like epidemics. The Nile turning to red is something that's described in some uh, ancient Egyptian texts. You're saying
0: there is an ancient Egyptian text that has the story where the Nile turns red?
2: Yes, I'm quite sure that there are Egyptian traditions that are not entirely uh, dissimilar
0: So when one hears that there are some ancient Egyptian sources that talk about the Nile turning red, there are two ways to think about that, roughly speaking. One way is the way that a religious traditionalist apologist would. They would say, aha, you know, here we have some independent evidence that these events might have actually happened. And then there's the way that a historian or a literary scholar would approach it, uh, which is to say, well, this is a trope, that existed in the ancient world. And if you've got a good story, people like to tell that story to each other. And it's not so surprising that that story would have turned up in multiple different literary traditions. I suppose that approach might also leave open room for the possibility that there was some natural phenomenon that sometimes occurred in Egypt that led to the reddening of water. But if there is any natural explanation for that that's credible, I'm not aware of it.
2: Right. And there are various different phenomena that can lead to the reddening of waters, you know, from algae to, uh, to clay deposits and all sorts of things like that. But clearly what's described in part of the biblical account where it says that it was accompanied by the, the water became undrinkable and all the fish died. I mean, that's a, a sort of very dramatic occurrence that doesn't necessarily align with the presence of of, of algae. But but back to your, your previous question about ancient Near Eastern texts talking about plagues, I mean, we have that even in the Bible. Moreover, you know, a really interesting text in that regard, I would say, is in Deuteronomy 28, where we have a whole series of curses, and those curses include a reference to an Egyptian disease of some sort. It says, "Yakha Adonai Mitzrayim. So may the Lord strike you with the Egyptian boils or something like that. And that's, in fact, one of the plagues described in Exodus. So that it's not only a mention in the Bible of a, um, of a plague of some sort, but it's even associating this particular one with Egypt. And I don't think that it needs to be a reference specifically to the plagues as told in the narrative. It could just be a disease that's associated With Egypt, you know, some people call the coronavirus the Chinese coronavirus. (laughs) That's exactly what I was gonna say. It's
0: the Chinese virus of its era, the Egyptian boils. Yeah. We'll be back
3: in just a moment. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards, a hotel upgrade, lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
1: That's oracle.com slash strategic, oracle.com slash strategic.
0: Let's turn to some more of the concrete plagues now and see if we can come up with anything interesting about them. So the frogs, I've always been fascinated by the frogs. Essentially, all of the other plagues or miracles sound to me sort of vaguely plausible, you know, large number of locusts eating everything that happens sometimes in the world. You know, pestilence, animals dying, that happens. Boils, definitely disgusting, and that happens. Even the darkness, which maybe doesn't exactly happen in the way that it's depicted in the biblical text. There are eclipses, and you can imagine people extending from that. But the inundation of an entire country by frogs has always seemed to be a little weird
2: and outlying. Do you have any insight into that? What's with the frogs? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that frogs taking over a whole country sounds relatively implausible, even as a once in a millennium sort of event. I'm not an expert on on ecology and, or on the habitat of frogs, but my understanding is that they're amphibians and don't like to be very far from the water at all. So assuming that all of Egypt um, didn't become marshland, I'm not sure how frogs could have survived in the city centers.
0: All right, well, we'll have to leave frogs then as a as a mystery for the moment. What about the plague that in Hebrew is called Arov and which usually gets translated in most English translations as a mixture of wild animals or something to that effect? The word literally means a mixture. If you think of the children's picture books of the plagues, you sort of imagine lions and tigers and other things walking around, which notably are never mentioned in the biblical text. What, what is this confusing plague probably meant to have been in the original context?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, it's worth pointing out with the question of what it means literally. So, as you say, the root ein reich bet of this word is something that sometimes has connotations of mixture, although that same root other times has different connotations. It's the root of the word west and, relatedly, the root associated with uh, with evening. And so, it, it has various different meanings, that that root. And in the case of um, of this particular plague, some of the ancient translations suggest that this was some sort of insect, a, a fly. Perhaps not entirely dissimilar from the plague of what we call lice, or kinim in Hebrew. Edan, let's fast
0: forward to, as it were, the granddaddy of them all, the, the plague of the death of the firstborn, um, which uh-huh. is maybe the most... Uh, Maybe I don't know if it's the most corona appropriate, but it's certainly the one um that involves the warning that people should not leave their homes until the day, and so there's a there's a little bit of self isolation going on at the at the family level. And it's also the one of the plagues that's most embedded in the story of actually the children of Israel getting up and leaving. Why do you think the firstborn are so much in in play here? Why not just, you know, a plague that kills off all of your offspring, or maybe it's about Pharaoh being the king. Any thoughts on the firstbornness aspect?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that there's, you know, something even more impressive about killing just the firstborn than, say, killing everyone. And if you're going to kill anyone, then killing the firstborn is is really devastating. It really is, you know, appropriate as a climactic plague in terms of the, the... Impact. I think that it it at least feels when when I read it like an, an, a particularly traumatic event. Part of that might be totally literary in that it's it's a more expansive description than what we have, say, for for frogs or lice. But there is something about both afflicting everyone and like proving the power, proving that this isn't just you know a pandemic but something that can only be the hand of God in the fact that it's just the firstborns who are afflicted. That really uh, shows who's in charge.
0: Idan, I wonder if I could close by asking you a a more personal question. And it's this. You know, you maintain a traditional Jewish practice. You know, you go to the synagogue, you perform the rituals, you keep the Sabbath. And you're also a brilliant and path-breaking Bible scholar, who engages with the biblical narratives as historical artifacts. When you think about Passover, do you draw a line? Do you think, well, at the Passover Seder, I'll talk like a traditionalist? Or do you think, no, like, this is how I tell the story of the Passover? You know, the rabbis say, whoever says more about the telling of the Passover story deserves praise. Is it your view for yourself, at least, that telling more about the Passover story includes the kind of historical analysis that we were just doing?
2: For me personally, it does. These are the things that I enjoy and I I delight in, you know, reading the texts critically and thinking about the historical context and, you know, the actual historical events that may or may not be reflected in these texts and traditions. So I grew up, like my parents and grandparents, uh, doing the Passover Seder every year. And it's extremely important to me and part of my heritage but I do um, like to ask questions, and I, you know, that famously is one of the uh, points of the Passover Seder is to have, you know, the children ask questions, and I'm, I haven't grown out of that. And um, and so every year, I do like to think about the problems and the complications and the evolution of the different traditions and the multiplicity of traditions. In fact, you know, a wonderful thing is that, you know, one of the elements, one of the central elements of the uh, Passover Seder is, you know, this sort of um, codified question asking. And so, (laughs) to me, these, you know, there are layers upon layers of questions. You know, the Passover Seder is designed to inspire questions. And even the questions that are being asked, have questions that can be asked about them, and that's my favorite part of the Passover Seder.:
0: Well, I appreciate it, Don that you're giving us a version of the Passover Seder where it is the origin of uh, your engagement with biblical criticism. so I, I appreciate that very much. <laughs> I'm very grateful to you, Don for joining me for our special Passover episode. I know you're working on some very big things, and with any luck. Uh, when those are published, we'll have you back to report on uh, those other projects too. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Talking to Idan made me feel ready to try, in a limited sort of way, to re-engage some of that tradition and some of that ritual in the form of the Passover Seder. I hope it had that effect for you, whether you're celebrating Passover, Easter, or none of the above. Until the next time I talk to you, be careful, be safe, be well, and enjoy whatever holidays work for you. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with research help from Zui Nguyen. Mastering is by Jason Gambrel and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background.